All right, good evening. Could I have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2? Now, I think I, I said it last time. If I didn't, let me just say it tonight. Because of the study being broken up a lot, I mean, vacations, special events, when we come back, I don't just like to turn to the scripture that we're studying and just go from there. I'd like to set the context again. So you have an idea, you know, where we are, especially if there's new folks, because uh, they need to know what's happening. So let me do that briefly, okay? Just briefly to kind of uh, get a running start at today's study. But uh, as we entered into chapter 2 of John's first epistle, he began by addressing true children of God who were maybe feeling guilty a little bit or somewhat feeling somewhat condemned even because he had not conquered over, you know, certain sins that, you know, had a hold on them. So John, being a shepherd, a pastor, he wanted to comfort those who were, um, you know, downtrodden, weak in their faith. And so he starts chapter 2 by saying, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now, John's saying, look, I, I'm going to say this, not that I want you to make it easier on you to sin. I don't want you to sin at all. But uh, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And so John wants to comfort the weak believers in Christ, you know, to assure them that God will forgive them if they confess their sin to him. He said that uh, directly in chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he, he did want to comfort the weak. But he didn't want to comfort and give false hope to those who were not genuine believers in Christ either. And so he immediately followed these words of comfort and encouragement to genuine believers with words designed to challenge those in the church who called themselves Christians but were living contrary to God's commandments. Look at verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him, that we're saved, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In him. And I'm sure John had all the ten in mind, commandments, when he said this. But I really think he was zeroing in on something Jesus said the night before the cross. In the upper room, John 13, verses 34 and 35, he said, a new, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. And I think that was the one he was really keying in on because he went on to say in chapter 2, verse 9, he who says he is in the light, in other words, that he's a Christian, and hates his brother, is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Guys, please understand, and we're reviewing a little bit still. Understand, John doesn't have backsliding Christians in mind when he said this, but listen, who he's really got in mind is church-going unbelievers. These would be the terrors among the wheat that Jesus talked about, all right? That Satan, if he can't beat them, He'll what? Join them. And so that's what he has done. He has infiltrated into churches. Back 
in Jesus' day, John's day, to the present day, there are among us at any given time uh, religious unbelievers. Now, some of them know they're not saved, but kind of play the part. Others, they think they are saved, but they're not. And John declares in no uncertain terms that any person who goes to the church and calls himself a Christian but hates other Christians for whatever reason, well, that person is deceiving themselves and still is in darkness. They're unsaved. Now, after dealing with these counterfeit Christians, John once again turned his attention to genuine believers in Christ, as we studied, I think, last time, and challenged them to go on to maturity in their walk with God. That was in verses 12 to 14. I'll just read verse 14, though. John says, I have written to you fathers, these would be the uh, elders of the church, because you have known him who was from the beginning. I have written to you young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. The word of God, when studied and put into practice in a believer's life, will cause them to grow and overcome the devil. But only if it's put into practice. James warned us about being hearers of the word but not doers in chapter 1, verse 22 of his epistle. And he says people deceive themselves. Uh, to this day, people come to church and they hear the word of God being taught. And for some reason, they think that just because they're here and they hear the word, that's all they need. That's all God really wants. And they really don't have much, if any, of a desire to go out and apply what they learn in their everyday lives out in the world. And that's a problem. As we said a few weeks ago, the goal of Christianity is to grow into strong men and women of God who know his word. Because the only way we're going to defeat the devil is to know God's word. As Jesus fought the devil in the wilderness, right? The devil came against him after the Lord was fasted 40 days and nights. And uh, the enemy, Satan, came against the Lord with three very powerful temptations. And uh, each one the Lord deflected with the words, it is written. That's how we deal with the enemy's temptations, attacks, condemnations. We flee to the word. We have to know the word. And we pull out scriptures that uh, say the exact opposite. You know, uh, God has got nothing to do with you anymore. He's tired. He's done with you. My God said in his word, uh, I shall never leave you nor forsake you. Because of what you're doing and the sin you constantly fall into, you are condemned. Well, there is now no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. And that's how you come against the devil. When he comes to attack, you got to know the word. It's the only way you can be victorious. That's the goal, right? To grow so we can really be used by God to go against the devil. That's what warfare is all about. Um, but as we said last time, the quickest way for the devil, for Satan to hinder or stop your growth altogether and my growth is through worldliness. And so this becomes ground zero in our battle with the devil. That's what spiritual warfare is really all about. It's a battle for control of our heart. Or in other words, who or what are we going to love more, God or the world? Godly Christians defeat the enemy. Worldly Christians are defeated by the enemy. Choose what you're going to be. And so that's what John begins to warn the children of God to be on guard against next in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eye, excuse me, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 
The Greek is this fallen world system that Satan controls, okay? Verse 17, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And last time we went into that in detail, so go online, you can listen to the teaching. Then John begins to talk about the danger of false doctrine being promoted by many false teachers who were in the world. That's true. But what he's really concerned about are the false teachers who have infiltrated into the church because they do the most damage to the people of God, of course. Okay, And so in verse 18, he makes mention of the ultimate false teacher that is going to come onto the world scene before Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Verse 18, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, let me just stop there. The term last hour is an eschatological term. Eschatology means the study of last things or end times. Uh, it's an eschatological term, a reference to the last days. The last days. He's not using the word hour there literally, of course. But uh, the last days, the last days started with Christ's first coming. They will end with his second coming when he establishes his kingdom. It will be a new age, a new day. But um, John is talking about this uh, ultimate false teacher, the one we know so much about from Scripture, the Antichrist, who is coming. Uh, his coming will precede the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, the Antichrist will come into the world I believe, right after the church is raptured. He's, I believe he's alive right now. Uh, but I'm, what I'm saying is he won't make his appearance on the world scene until the church is taken out of here. We went through this in detail last time. And of course, when Jesus Christ comes, he will destroy the Antichrist, his armies, uh, and establish his kingdom on the earth. But, but then John throws us kind of a curveball by telling us that at the end of verse 18, even now many antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour, the last days. The many antichrists that John refers to are those false teachers that in his day, and even in our day, of course, uh, false teachers that use Christ and Christianity as a platform from which to teach their twisted antichrist false doctrine. Concerning these false prophets and teachers, John says in verse 19, where we really pick it up for tonight, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Paraphrase, many of these false teachers that have gone out into the world started in the church. Now, that doesn't mean that we're saved. They were drawn to the church. They were drawn to uh, the followers of Christ, and they wanted to get those followers to follow them. Uh, and so they um, you know, began to rise up. Remember what Paul said to the Ephesian elders? I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in from the outside, not sparing the flock, but also from among your own brethren. Men will rise up speaking perverse things that draw disciples away after themselves. So the attacks are going to be coming from the outside in, from the inside, leading sheep out. This is what we're up against. And John said that many of these false teachers, he said, uh, they went out from us, but they were really not one of us. They were really not saved. 
For if they had been one of us, if they had been true Christians, they would have remained with us. But because they left the faith, it proves they were never genuine Christians. Now, guys, this is a principle that John emphasized in his gospel and in his epistles, that genuine believers, listen, very important, that genuine believers abide in Christ. The Greek word for abide is meno, and it means to continue or to remain. To continue or to remain. Genuine Christians continue in the faith. Phony Christians eventually show their true colors and depart from the faith. John and the other apostles learned this principle from the Lord Jesus Christ himself when he first spoke it, at least first recorded in the scriptures. He might have been saying this from day one. But we know that the first place we pick it up is in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 31, when Jesus spoke these words to the Pharisees. He said, if you abide, the Greek word meno, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And abiding in the word, as you read John's writings, abiding in the word is the same as abiding in Christ. A person who remains in God's truth is a person who has the truth in their heart, or in other words, is saved. That's the idea. So Jesus spoke this to the Pharisees in John 8. Jesus' disciples heard it at that time. But then he, uh, he uh, spoke it again to his own disciples directly on the night before he went to the cross in what we now call the famous vine and branches discourse. Turn to John 15. We're not going to read all of John 15, but I'll just give you a flavor of what we're talking about. John 15, verse 1. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Skip down to verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now those words have struck terror into the heart of every carnal Christian that's ever lived. Because it sounds like Jesus is saying, if you don't bear fruit, you're going to be cut off and thrown into hell, which puts a lot of pressure on us to bear fruit. But here's the point. A branch, if it's attached to the trunk of a tree or a branch to the vine, it doesn't have to groan or strain, never walk through an orchard and hear the branches moaning and groaning and straining to bear fruit. It just happens naturally, right? And, and so the idea is not that if you don't work hard to bear fruit, you're going to be cut off and thrown into hell. The, the point is, if you're really attached to Jesus, you will bear fruit. And those who superficially attach themselves to Christ, what do I mean? Come to church, play the part, uh, talk the talk have the 50-pound Schofield reference Bible under their arm, bumper stickers all over their car, you know, that kind of person, but are not really attached to Christ. You say, is that true? Are they out? Yeah, they're out there. They're out there. They don't bear fruit, okay? Uh, some, some fake fruit, 
some, you know, uh, you know, counterfeit fruit. They're good at that, some of them. But uh, God knows. Remember what Paul told us about the Lord? The firm foundation of the Lord stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. He knows. And those who are his are truly connected to Christ, and they will bear fruit because it's through Jesus that the fruit is born, through the power of the Spirit. So, but this was a principle that uh, Jesus' disciples got from him, and now they're sharing it with us in their writings. And so John picked up on this principle, and he uses it in his first epistle primarily uh, as a mark of genuineness, a mark of genuineness. Look at chapter 2, verse 24, 1 John. 1 John 2, verse 24, Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. And so in other words, if God's word abides in you, because you know it's true, you've embraced it, it's yours, it's, it's truth that you've internalized, it's conviction, it's what you've built your life on, you abide in the Word, you're abiding in Christ and in the Father, okay? And what that means is you have eternal life. Look at verse 24 of John, 1 John 3. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Well, how do we know we have the Holy Spirit? Is your life changing? Is your life changing? Are, are you bearing fruit? Well, not as much as I would like. Okay, none of us are producing as much as we would like. But I can tell you one thing, and I know I speak for all of us here. I can look back at my life. I'm not all that I want to be, but I'm sure not all I once was either. That, that signifies that, that Jesus is working. Uh, he was begun a good work, and, and you will complete it, right? We are a work in progress. And if you can look back and say, you know, I'm not the same person I used to be. 10, 15, 20 years ago, the Spirit of God is in you, okay? And that's how we know, by what comes out of our lives, all right? Now, this principle, that genuine Christians continue in the faith, but phony Christians eventually show their true colors and depart from the faith, is woven throughout the New Testament. Peter talked about these phony Christians. Why don't you turn to 2 Peter 2? And guys, I will warn you, we're not going to get... Too much farther in John's first epistle tonight. Because 1 John 2.19 is a pivotal verse. Pivotal verse. It embodies so much. John says in the negative, in 1 John 2.19, what Jesus and so many others said in the positive. The positive is abide in Christ. Remain, right? The negative, the opposite, if you don't abide in Christ, you depart, it proves you're lost, Okay? So, very important principle, and I just really wanted to take you through the scriptures a little bit to show you how important this subject is. Jesus talked about it, Paul talked about it, Peter talked about it, James, Jude, every one of them talked about it because it's that important, okay? So, Peter talked about these phony Christians who, you know, they look good for a while and they hang out around for a while, but then they leave. Look at verse 20, 2 Peter 2, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. So for a while, their life was being cleaned up, these people, okay? 
But eventually they went back and got retangled in the old sins. If they uh, are entangled again in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Hold on to that thought. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns of its own vomit and a sow having washed to her a pig, having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Peter's drawing on a couple of very um, simple illustrations that, of course, people in that agricultural culture would have known very well. A couple of very, you know, uh, in Israel, uh, stray dogs were a real problem. And once in a while, I would imagine that, because I think that's what Peter's talking about, somebody would adopt one of these stray animals. Of course, dogs living on the street, they're, they're scavenging garbage, they're, they're mangy, mongrels, right? Roaming around. And so you know how it is, though. Some people have a real heart for these kind of animals. And so we'll say one of them, a family, adopts one of these dogs, right, off the street, uh, lets the dog live in the family's house, uh, you know, feeds the, the dog from the table and table scraps and, uh, and so on. It's a wonderful thing for the dog, right? You think, well, that's a pretty good deal for the dog, okay? But for a wild dog like that, the streets are all they really know. So eventually, you leave the door open one day, and boom, the dog bolts, right? And is gone. And, and maybe weeks later, you see the thing, you know, I don't know, eating its own vomit somewhere. Or, or how about he talks about a pig uh, having been taken from the mud hole, washed up, brought into the house as a family pet. Another illustration of this idea, right? And of course, you could take a pig from the mud hole. I don't never had a pig for a pet, but I guess they're popular with some people. And I've seen people on TV say they're pretty smart, you know? I can't imagine having a pig for a pet, but I'm not going to put down those that do, okay? Um, but say you rescue one of these pigs from, uh, you know, wild pig from the mud hole, clean it up, you know, bring it into the house, it becomes the family pet. And for a while, the pig tolerates this situation. But again, leave the door up one day and the thing bolts and next thing you know, it's back in the mud pit. What is Peter's point? The reason a dog and a pig, if you've rescued them, brought them into the house, cleaned them up, started to give them a whole new kind of a life, the reason they go back to the old life is because, listen, that's all they really know. That's their nature. That's their nature. They're only acting according to their nature. That's Peter's point. The reason, and this is what is the application, okay? The reason people who come to church for a while and stop, you know, doing some of the sinful things that they used to do. And yeah, folks that will start coming to church, their lives are a mess. And uh, they know they're a mess. And so they, they really want to make some changes. And they know Christians are loving people. And so, you know, there's a church not too far from my house. I think I'll start going there. And so they start going. And, of course, when you hang around, what the Bible says, bad company corrupts good habits. Well, good company puts an end to bad habits. If you're hanging around with God's people and they're loving on you and you're coming to church, and, you know, Christians, you know, we love on people, right? And, 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 and folks are loving on them and come over to my house for dinner this week, you know, and, and, and they're not drinking. 
they're 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 starting to you know to uh, dress nicer and uh, maybe they somebody in the church finds them a job and that kind of a thing, right? That, that's wonderful. But if they don't give their heart to Christ, all they have is the old nature, and you know how that goes. If you don't have a new nature, eventually you're going to go back to the world because that's all you know. That's your nature. The people that John has in mind, I'm convinced, are people that started coming to church, hanging out with God's people. And they experienced what we called uh, a few weeks ago in the study. They experienced some reformation. Reformation is a, uh, is a term for somebody who is uh, kind of cleaned up for, on the outside. Okay, cleaned up on the outside. But it's a surface cleansing. It's a superficial change, right? Reformation. But often they stop short of going all the way with Jesus to full-blown regeneration. Regeneration is a cleansing of the heart through salvation, which would have given them a new nature and new desires, you see. Why do you come to church as much as you do? Why do you read your Bibles at home or at work? Why do you have praise music on in your car when you're going to work or to church or to the store you didn't do that before you became a christian why are you doing it now i mean are your pastors forcing you of course not you're doing it because you have a new nature and you don't want to do the things you used to do i don't you christians can't have any fun that's why i'm not a christian you can't go drinking, you can't go partying, you, you know, sleeping around, you can't do any of that stuff. Uh, I got news for you. I used to do all those things. But when I got saved, a dramatic transformation took place. And I, I don't want it. It's not like I'm fighting myself. Oh, I can't go partying this week because I'm a Christian. I got to go to church. It's not like that. I love going to church. I love interacting with God's people. I love singing his praises. I love studying his word. When I'm not teaching and I'm on vacation, I go to church too. And so these are evidence that we are a new creation, that we are, have new natures, right? And uh, if a person just comes to church and really doesn't accept Christ into their heart and only experience some outward reformation, they are like the Pharisees whom Jesus said were like whitewashed tombs. Turn to Matthew 23. You all know it. Let me read it to you. Matthew 23, starting with verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Folks, that's religion to a T. Religion only surface cleanses the, the outward of a person, you know, where they can even put on the facade. Uh, there's a lot of folks that go to church and act very pious, but in their own private times, uh, they're not so holy. The Pharisees were the epitome of religious people who outwardly appeared righteous and holy and good, but God sees the heart, and God knew their hearts were corrupt as ever because they weren't regenerated. They weren't saved right? Now, earlier in his ministry, Jesus had warned some would-be disciples that coming to, listen, the border of salvation, 
without crossing over into salvation, he warned these folks that to do so, to come to the border and not cross over, would be extremely detrimental to their spiritual health by leading them into greater bondage to the devil. He said, what are you talking about? Turn to Matthew 12. Kind of a cryptic little uh, passage. Uh, let, me, let me try to explain what I believe the Lord is teaching through it. But, but Jesus said, Matthew 12, verse 43, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, this is the unclean spirit talking. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. The key word there is empty. Empty. Is it possible for evil spirits to leave a person and yet that person not receive Christ? Yes. Jesus is telling us that. Okay? It's possible. Well, how does that happen? I'll show you. So this spirit, unclean spirit, was in this guy. And what happened that the spirit left him? Well, I think he started hanging around with God's people. I think he started to think about what Jesus and others uh, that followed him were teaching. And I think he started to take that to heart. Maybe the fear of God began to grip his heart. And he realized he couldn't keep living the same life he was living, whatever that life was, immorality, drunkenness, whatever. And so he begins to turn in his heart away from these things. And I believe that drove this spirit from his life. And so Jesus said the demon eventually comes back uh, and finds this the house he was living in. Think of the heart of this man. Finds it swept but empty. Listen, guys, you can sweep, quote-unquote, the house of your heart clean from some sins through reformation. But a clean house is not enough. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, It is not enough to clean the house. We must also invite in the right tenant. The Pharisees were proud of their clean houses, quote-unquote, but their hearts were empty. Mere religion or reformation will not save. There must be regeneration, the receiving of Christ into that heart, end quote. Again, here is the danger of someone cleaning up their life a little through religion, but stopping short of inviting Jesus to then come in and live in their heart. Their heart is susceptible to being filled with other spirits, evil spirits. You see, the real problem with Reformation, guys, is that the thrill and novelty of going to church and hanging out with Christian people, guess what, eventually wears off. Wears off. When that happens, the unregenerate person goes back to the old life because guess what they're not new creations in christ which means they don't have the nature of god within them they are really still of the world you can take somebody of the world and place them in church in fact probably well not everybody but but a, a large number of people that wind up getting saved came to church first okay now some god worked on them uh, in the privacy of their own room sometime and they fell on their knees and got saved, or they picked up a Bible and read it and got saved. But for most people, I think, they come to church, right? So you have a worldly person sitting in the midst of a group of regenerated people. And again, we're always on the lookout for new people. 
because we don't know what their spiritual state is. So we assume they don't know the Lord, and we try to reach out to them, right? And, and some people are lonely. They, they, they don't have really anybody in their life, and they're empty, and they're lonely, and you guys love on them, and they, they feel the love, and they appreciate it, and so they start coming because they love to be loved and, a, and feel like they, they have friends. But that only lasts so long, you know? The novelty wears off. And if they haven't invited Jesus, I mean, there's been some surface cleansing. They're not drinking anymore, maybe. They're not going out partying like they used to, or if at all. But if they don't truly accept Christ into their heart, where he comes in to live and gives them a new nature, eventually the novelty's going to wear off. You guys are great, but unbelievers aren't going to hang out with you forever. Okay? Because they just, their nature is not, not to do that. So they go back to the world. But here's the real problem with that. Once they have sat in church for a while and have heard God's truth, but then willingly turn away from it. Well, Jesus is saying the end result is much worse than before. Look, you've heard of the, the, the statement, ignorance of the law is no excuse, right? And that's true. And that, that came from God, basically. I mean, God holds all people, all sinners, accountable for their sins, their violations of his law. But he's much tougher on those who willfully transgress his law. The word sin means to miss the mark. doesn't always have to be intentional. You might be trying to hit the mark. You're just a poor marksman. You don't know what the mark really is. You're trying to be good. You don't know. You know. And, and so it's one thing to to violate God's commandments and not really realize your... Now, God is going to hold you accountable, but he's much more patient. Uh, and um, it goes a lot easier on people who uh, sin by accident, not intentionally, than he is with those people who, who um, commit transgressions. A transgression is a willful act of disobedience. So God draws a line in the sand says, don't cross this line, otherwise it's sin. And somebody steps over the line and says, okay, now what are you going to do about it? That's a transgression. God deals with those people much harsher than he would others. But the problem is that once you hear the word of God and you reject it, God holds you accountable for the truth that you've learned because now you can't plead ignorance of the law. Now it's a transgression when you violate something God has said. Much more serious, right? And so the end result is much worse than before you even started coming to church if you're going to reject Christ and the truth. And that's what Jesus goes on to warn in Matthew 12, verse 45. So, you know, when the unclean spirit comes out of a, a man, goes to dry places looking for rest and finds none, goes back to the house where it came from, this person, goes back and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Wow. Look, guys, when we accepted Jesus into our hearts, we received, as I said earlier, a new nature. Peter says this, 2 Peter 1.4. He says, we become partakers of the divine nature, the nature of God. And as such, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, old things pass away, all things become new. And the evidence of this we see immediately. I mean, there are there are things in your life that don't 
get resolved immediately. I know when I got saved, like, you know, eight out of the ten big ones I was involved with, uh, it was like almost immediately they, they stopped. There's a couple, there's always a couple that hang on, you know, if you're a smoker or a drinker or something, uh, kind of hangs out. You'll get victory eventually, though. God promises that. But um, the, the evidence of, of, of receiving Christ and the Spirit coming in is, is almost immediate in that immediately the things that we used to like to do, we, we don't want to do anymore. I mean, over the things we used to like to do, we just put them under the category of sin, okay? All the things, all the sins we used to like to do, uh, we don't have a heart to do them anymore. And the stuff that we never wanted to do, go to church, read the Bible, pray, uh, you know, have a worship service, you know, that kind of thing, now we find ourselves drawn to do it. And nobody's forcing us. It's a beautiful thing. We just want to do it. We want to be around God's people. We, we want to be in the Word, and so on. It's a, it's a beautiful transformation. This, guys, is one of the most powerful evidences whereby we know that Jesus Christ has moved in. We're abiding in Jesus. This is what John is saying, and Jesus himself said, and the other apostles. This is abiding in Christ because you have this new life, and it just keeps going on because you continue to remain in Jesus and the Word. Don't misunderstand. I don't want to confuse you. Abiding doesn't make you a true disciple of Christ. It just proves that you are one. John 8, 31, you ought to have this memorized. We've been on it for about 10 weeks uh, on Sunday morning. John 8, 31, Jesus said, If you abide in my Word, you are my disciples indeed. The Greek word is aletheis, means truly. You are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The abiding is the fruit of being true disciples. It doesn't make you a disciple. It just bears witness that you are a disciple of Christ. Now look, many so-called disciples of Jesus, when he laid out the cost of true discipleship, you know, taking up their crosses, denying themselves, following in Jesus' footsteps. That, that was the, the, the cost of true discipleship, right? He had a lot of groupies, okay, for lack of a better term. He was always chasing them away by laying down what was really involved in being his disciple. And one of those was in Matthew's gospel where he said, look, if you want to really be one of my disciples, you've got to take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. Very important. Many of the people, when Jesus began to lay out the real cost of discipleship, it says that they went away and followed him no more. Okay, that was good, though. He wasn't into big crowds. He was into true hearts. And what's the point of having all these people if half of them are unbelievers only following Christ because they want to thrill, watch him work a miracle, or put the Pharisees down? That, that was good uh, theater. In those days, there was not many options for, for you know, entertainment. And these Pharisees always looking down on the common man. Here's Jesus is putting them down, putting them down. They loved it. So a lot of folks wanted to keep following Jesus for the entertainment value. But he wasn't into that. He wasn't a celebrity. Oh, he was, but he didn't want to be. And so he would periodically turn to these people and begin to challenge them. Why are you following me? And he would lay it out to them. He would really press them on this idea of commitment and dying to self. A lot of them would leave and follow him no more. That was fine with him. 
He was all about focusing on the genuine. And I think that some of those people could be the ones John had in mind too in uh, 1 John 2.19. Yeah, false prophets and teachers, no doubt. But there were many false Christians that never wound up being evangelists or pastors that were in the church too. And uh, eventually they left. And that's why, again, John said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been one of us, they would have continued. That was the idea. Remained. Meno. They would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest. None of them were of us. They weren't really Christians. They were the terrorists, hanging out with the wheat, uh, that kind of thing. Look, the evidence of salvation, and, and I'm not really teaching anything that you don't already know, but this is one of those pivotal verses. So, you know, just bear with me, because this is an important subject. And uh, maybe not so much for people in our church, because, you know, we just keep giving the word, and so you guys know the word. But there's a lot of churches that it's all about how many people they can get to come in. And they will lower the standards, and they will be man-pleasers, and they will preach messages to tickle ears. It's all about building the church. That is so unlike Jesus, who chased more people away than wound up ever following him. But the evidence of salvation is continuing in the faith. Turn to Colossians 1. The evidence of salvation is continuing in the faith. Colossians 1, verse 21. Paul said, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. He's obviously talking about genuine Christians. Then he throws us again a curveball. Verse 23. If indeed you continue... In the faith, uh-oh, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Now, a lot of people, including myself, in my early days when I read that, I read it as a conditional statement. It isn't. It's not if you don't continue, you will be cast out and go to hell. It's if you're genuine, you will continue and those that don't are showing themselves to be unbelievers. Because it's all about continuing. And if you really are connected to Christ, you're going to continue. You're, 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 I'm not saying you're not going to backslide once in a while. That's different from what we're talking about. Hang on to that, because I'm going to end this message with that idea. I'm not saying we don't backslide once in a while. But we're talking about something that's much worse and different from that. Okay, That Paul and... Peter and the others, and Jesus himself put his finger on, was addressing. Listen to me. Continuing in the faith isn't a condition for maintaining salvation. It's the evidence of true saving faith in a person's heart. I can't see the heart. God does. So how do we know what's in the heart? By what comes out of the mouth, as Jesus said, and what fruit is produced in the life. And continuing the faith is one of those fruits that, if you're genuine, it will be there. Okay? Again, understand Paul is not warning true Christians that if they backslide and stop continuing in the faith, they're going to be judged and sent to hell. He is warning would-be disciples, phony Christians, to get serious and to make a genuine commitment to Jesus or else turning back, and they will eventually turn back. 
That's the point. Or else turning back, they will be judged and sent to hell because they didn't really believe. Look at Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. Because the writer to the Hebrews, and I believe it was Paul, had this subject in mind when he said in chapter 10, verse 37, For yet a little while, and he who is coming, Jesus, will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone, listen, draws back, my soul, God speaking, has no pleasure in him. But Paul says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, to hell, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So Paul says, look, I know the group I'm with. I know we're genuinely saved, but there's a lot of folks in the church who are not. They're going to draw back. They're going to go back to the world. God has no delight in them because they weren't real. Those that don't abide, they don't abide. In other words, they don't remain. They don't continue in the faith are what the Bible calls apostates. Some pastors define an apostate as a backslidden Christian. I absolutely do not define it that way. Biblically speaking, an apostate is somebody who claims to be a Christian, and listen to me, really believes it themselves at the time. I'm not saying all these people are pretending. A lot of them really think they are saved. But God sees the heart. So an apostate is somebody who claims to be a Christian, believes they're a Christian, continues in the faith for a while, often weeks, sometimes months, and sometimes even years before they depart, and then renounces their faith in Christ and walks away from Christianity. Last Saturday night, before I went to bed, I checked my Christian news service, and I saw something that floored me. Josh Harris has renounced the faith, and is divorcing his wife. Who is Joshua Harris? Back in 1998 or 9, my wife and I and several people from our church went to Moody Church to hear this young, dynamic preacher. He's only 20 years old. He had just written a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. It was racing to the church. Christians were buying it like crazy. And so we wanted to see this Joshua Harris for ourselves. And I got to tell you, after I watched Josh Harris teach the word, I was depressed. I was depressed because he was so good. I thought, I've been in ministry 20 years. This kid, he's 20 years old. He's got me beat by a mile. I wasn't really depressed, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> he, he was that good. He was that good. Dynamic. The whole evening was dynamic. After Josh graduated, from uh, Bible College. Uh, he went on to be the lead pastor of the Covenant Life Church, which uh, I'm reading from their website, the founding church of Sovereign Grace Ministries in Gaithersburg, Maryland. He was the pastor from 04 to 2015 when he stepped down to pursue further studies. Here's what the article, you can go online, there are several different articles. I just pulled this one. I read this just a few days ago. And uh, the uh, writer who was talking about this said, and I quote, uh, Harris wrote the best-selling 1997 book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which rejected traditional dating and courtship and also argued that any physical intimacy before marriage was sinful. 
Earlier this month, years after having renounced the message of his book, Harris announced that he and his wife were divorcing, yet intended to remain friends to help raise their three children. Then in an Instagram post last Friday, just a few days ago, right? Harris announced that he no longer considers himself to be a Christian, referencing the biblical term falling away to describe his spiritual state. He said, by all measurements that I have, that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now, wrote Harris in the Instagram post. He also expressed regret for his past opposition to homosexuality and same-sex marriage, explaining that he was sorry for the views that I taught in my books and as a pastor regarding sexuality. He said, I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you, the gay community, and your place in the church, and for any ways that my writing, I apologize for hurting you, and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me, Harris said, end quote. So not only is now he going through a crisis of faith, no, I think it's worse than that, he's renounced the faith, now he's apologizing for everything he's taught from the Bible. It reminds me of what Paul said in Hebrews chapter 6. If you turn there, these are very difficult days for the body of Christ. And when a dynamic leader, pastor like this, says, I'm chucking the faith, I don't believe it anymore, the damage that does to the sheep is astronomical. Of course, you all know Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6. Let me read them to you. Because I have to, I, I, I can't read these without thinking of Josh Harris. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucified again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. The key phrase, guys, and you can go to our Hebrew study uh, and pull out the entire teaching. I'm just going to touch on it, okay? Very controversial passage for a lot of reasons, and we took it apart and, and, and talked about what certain groups believe about this, whatever, okay? I'm not going to go there tonight. But the key phrase, and the one I believe unlocks the correct interpretation of this passage, is the phrase, if they fall away. The Greek word translated fall away only appears once in the New Testament right here, and it means to deliberately, willfully, and forcefully turn away. In other words, to renounce. We're not talking about backsliding, which implies you slip and you slide backward. We're talking about a deliberate, willful act. You know what's going on, you know what you've believed, and you're turning from it, you are renouncing it. Very strong idea, okay? One author said, if a person has received the knowledge of Jesus Christ and has experienced the work of God in their life and has been enlightened to the truth of God by the Holy Spirit and even tasted the power of God, maybe they were healed. God heals unbelievers. Maybe they were healed. Oh, God worked a miracle in their life. So they've even tasted the power of God if they deliberately, willfully, and definitively turn their back on all of it, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, end quote. Notice 
the writer doesn't say it is impossible for them to be forgiven. He says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Some would say, yes, but he says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Doesn't that mean that they had already repented once and therefore they were saved? I mean, doesn't it prove that? I mean, they repented once. Well, my answer to that is no, not necessarily. Repentance means to have a change of mind. I mean, it's possible for a person to recognize that their life is a mess and then that they need God, quote-unquote, whatever that means to people today. Way back in Francis Schaeffer's day, he said, look, the time has come we can't use the word God and assume people know what we're talking about. So many gods out there and weird belief systems. But there are people out there who know their life is a mess. They need God, okay? And so they come to church to begin to turn away from their sinful lifestyle, as we've already said, right? And yet they don't go all the way to salvation. The rich young ruler is a great example of this. He wanted eternal life. He knew he needed eternal life. He came to Christ and asked that he might have eternal life. And Jesus knew that his money was on the throne of his heart. And so he said, give your money away. That's what's keeping you from following me. And then follow me with all your heart. Because God wants our hearts, right? All of our hearts. And he'll put his finger on whatever it is that's keeping you from really following him with all your heart. For some it's money, for some it's a goal, for some it's a desire for fame or whatever. Jesus has a way. He's not saying that to get into heaven you've got to give all your money away and everyone's got to be poor. No, that's not what he's saying. For this rich young guy, that was his deal. That was what's keeping, was keeping him from following Christ fully. I mean, he acknowledged that he was in need of salvation. He, he said, what more do I lack? He knew he was lacking something. I mean, he had a change of mind that brought him to Christ, but he never really gave his heart to Christ. He went away sorrowful when Jesus said it because he had great wealth. Mark's gospel is the only one that says this. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Some people think because God is loved, everyone gets into heaven. That's not true. God loved the entire world and has provided a way by which they might be saved through his son. If you reject that way, Christ, even though God loves you, he has to send you to hell. And again, guys, a person can come to church knowing that their life is going in the wrong direction, begin to experience, you know, Hebrews 6, 4, and 5, and even begin to show signs of change, repentance, changing of mind, and somewhat change of direction of their life, and still not go all the way to salvation. This is what all these scriptures are talking about. You say, how can you tell if they haven't gone all the way? Well, they eventually go back to the way they were because... They don't have a new nature, so they're going to eventually go back to the world because that's all they really know. But here's the problem. They wind up worse than before. Again, Peter's words, would have been better for them not to have known the way of truth and to know it and turn from it. And Jesus said in Matthew 12, uh, you know, this evil spirit brings back seven spirits more evil than himself. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Hebrews 6, verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened jump to verse 6 if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the son of god and put him to an open shame the reason these people can't be brought again to repentance is because as some commentators believe is what is being said here now i'm not sure i agree with that but i'll, I'll share it with you okay why can't these people be brought to repentance 
Why is it impossible, as the writer says? Some commentators say, well, they've heard the truth. They understood the truth. They, they know who Jesus is. They know what he did for him. They know what salvation entails. But at one point, they completely renounced whatever little faith they had. They renounced the truth. And so the idea is, their, their attitude at this point seems to be, well, been there, done that. And now they move on to try something new, atheism, hedonism, new age mysticism. There's a lot of isms out there floating around that people want to embrace. They can't be brought again to repentance because they know the truth, but have rejected and renounced the truth. There's no, there is no secondary gospel to save them. You know, it's like here's the truth: either accept it or reject it. You can't say, "Well, I don't care for that too much." Do you have another way? There's only one way: it's through Christ, right? But the, but commentators say, you know, this is the idea: uh, they know the truth, they they understand the truth, but they have rejected the truth. They've renounced the faith. There's nothing more in the way of information that we can give them so that they, it would cause them to change their mind, repent, and come back to Jesus. And so at that point, the Bible says they are now apostates. Apostates. The writer mentions this group in Hebrews chapter 10, if you'd like to turn there, unless you're already there. He, he mentions these again. See, I don't think Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6, it's talking about backslidden Christians. Go, go online and listen to the teaching. There's a lot of reasons I, I don't believe. I believe what's in view, again, is apostates. People that come to the very border of salvation, hang out in church, hear the word of God, taste the power from on high. Maybe they see people getting saved. Life's turned around radically. Maybe they themselves experienced a healing of some kind. They have tasted the power of God, but then walk away from it. Renounce it. Been there, done that. What else you got, you know? And the writer of the Hebrews mentions these folks again in chapter 10, verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. What is the punishment like for those who knew the truth and rejected it as opposed to those who really didn't know the gospel but still sinned and wind up going to hell? A lot worse. Now, guys, the idea that someone who comes to church for a while begins to change and then walks away from Jesus, the idea that they can't ever go on to be saved, impossible. To renew the beginning of repentance, they're done. And, and a lot of commentators believe that. And, and I just read you why. But this idea, it's hard for us to get our minds around. That if somebody comes to church for a while and walks away and goes back to the world, that, that's it, they're done. We have a hard time getting our minds around that. That God's grace still can't recover them. Deeply troubling to us. Because we know people that fit that description, right? We all do. But you know, take heart. Take heart. Because the passage may not be as ironclad as you might think at first glance. I love what Warren Worsby said. Boy, the kingdom of God misses him. He lives on through his writings. He's the only one that brought this up when I studied Hebrews. He said, and I quote, You should note that the words crucify and put in Hebrews 6.6 6 are in the Greek present participles. In other words, while they are crucifying and while they are putting to an open shame, putting him to an open shame, 
The writer did not say that these people could never be brought to repentance. He said that they could not be brought to repentance while they were treating Jesus Christ in such a shameful way. Once they stop disgracing Jesus Christ in this way, they can be brought to repentance. They can be saved. End quote. I don't see any reason why we shouldn't embrace that idea. I know our, our God is very merciful, right? Just because somebody at that moment in their life who's listened to the gospel, come to church for a while, says, ah, I'm out of here, and walks away, doesn't mean the Holy Spirit leaves them and doesn't continue to work in their heart even after they leave church. As long as the mentality is that, you know, that Jesus is not worth it, or when it says he, they put him to shame, the, the Greek word means to, to make a judgment in the sense that, yeah, 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 it, he's everything the, the Pharisees said. A deceiver, uh, a, a phony. Uh, he deserved what he got. He's not the son of God. He's nobody special. Well, as long as you think that, well, you're not going to get saved through Jesus, right? But if God does get a hold of your heart down the road, and you, you know, life has a way of pounding the pride out of us, you know? Look at the prodigal son, right? God has a way of pursuing and pounding the rebellion out of us because he loves us. No reason to, to believe that down the road, God can't get a hold of their heart and they come back and get saved, Okay. Look, is Joshua Harris an apostate or simply a backslidden Christian? I don't know. Time will tell. Pray for him. There's a lot of Josh Harris's out there nowadays. Men and women who have once been champions of the faith but have walked away for whatever reason. I think a good number of them are just backslidden. Life has beaten them up. And God hasn't always acted the way that they wanted him to act. So now they're bitter. The child wasn't healed. The marriage wasn't saved. And they get upset. And so they walk away from God. Even in that position, I, I have a hard time believing they would renounce the faith in their heart. God knows, though. God knows. I like to think Joshua Harris is the real deal. I like to think that he's going through a rough time. I, I like to think he'll come back. Because he really was a dynamic communicator of God's word but these are very difficult days we have to bind together and we have to be in the word we have to encourage each other daily as we see the day approaching Christ's return because the devil's ramping up his attacks and he's peeling Christians off one by one from the body of Christ through discouragement and a lot of other things we need to encourage each other pray that God would make this church a church of Barnabases uh, sons of encouragement daughters of encouragement right all right, uh, I promise you next time we'll get farther than one verse. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. It is light to our feet, light to our path. And Father, we thank you for opening our eyes. No, we are not all that we want to be, but we know that we are not all we once were either. Thank you, Lord. There's fruit there. There is, there is evidence that we are no longer the way we once were, we have a new nature. Lord, give grace as we continue to study uh, in your word, that, Lord, you would open our eyes to these things, and that, Father, we would be uh, stronger as we know the word, that we might defeat the wicked one. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.